Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Today's reading is from Fighting with the Screaming Eagles by Robert Bowen, an account of fighting with 101st Airborne from Normandy to Bastogne. Robert has been captured in the Battle of the Bulge. Chapter 14. Into the Frying Pan. The ambulatory wounded were marched through the knee-deep snow with a biting wind tearing our uniforms. Most of the men had discarded overcoats during the battle and were now paying for it. We were taken to a hillside from which the German infantry had been firing into our positions. The snow was trampled, torn and blackened from mortar and artillery shells, and some German corpses lay sprawled in the snow. At other places were bits of uniform and bloody stains left by the wounded who had been taken away. We were lined up by angry Germans who shouted such things as Verdammt Amerikaner Schweinehund, Unser Kameraden kaputt, and Scheiden die Amerikaner Bastarden. It was a tense moment for us. The enemy soldiers were so angry, anything could have happened. After all, just days before, one German unit had shot down nearly 100 American POWs in cold blood at Malmedy, and other Germans had killed numerous Belgian civilians, many of them women and children, for little or no cause. However, a sergeant suddenly appeared and calmed his men. He allowed them to strip us of any valuables, and I lost a nice but broken wristwatch that my wife had sent me. It had stopped running during an artillery barrage, which had shaken my foxhole. Fortunately, I was allowed to keep my wedding band. The enemy had surrounded the position and began rounding up stragglers who were brought over to us. Two were from my 3D platoon, Sergeant Joseph Klokowski, 3rd Squad Leader, and PFC Harold Zimberg. Among the other prisoners were Sergeant Oakley Knapp, Joe D'Amato, and Lieutenant Gwyn. Tech Sergeant George Bonner, Staff Sergeant James Z. Bell, Sergeant John Samuel, PFC Cloyd R. Brotherton, Privates Edward Melance, Herbert Lawhorn, George Miller, Reinhardt and PFC Milan were also captured. The crew of the disabled tank and the crew of the TD, including its commander, Staff Sergeant Chester Sekwinski, were prisoners also. There was a lot of random shooting and explosions as the Germans consolidated the position. I thought the wounded who couldn't walk were killed, but they weren't. However, Samuel, who was Jewish, was killed later that night. The moon was bright and full, bathing the countryside as if a huge spotlight had been turned on. Many of 2D Platoon's men who had survived now tried to escape over the snow. PFC George Kalb, my friend from Baltimore, who was a BAR gunner, fired all his clips, methodically put the empties back into his belt and took off with Private Frank Marine. They reached a barbed wire fence, bullets kicking up in the snow around them. George got over. Frank didn't. His body hung in the wire. The scene around the large house in back of the roadblock was eerie. Fire from a burning haystack lit the area, along with what remained of the burning tank. It had been blown up. The TD and half-track were being driven away by rowdy Germans. The enemy had thrown caution aside. They acted like Boy Scouts at a jamboree, boisterously shouting and acting as if they were in no danger of being shelled by our troops. After rounding up all the Americans, the Germans marched us to some captured trucks and weapons carriers, and we took off. Eventually, we reached a small town, which was bustling with motor traffic, moving towards Bastogne. Surprisingly, there was a complete lack of blackout discipline. 
I wondered if the Germans knew about our ammunition shortage. We were taken to a row house, probably the regimental CP, searched, then questioned by an officer who spoke perfect English. Afterward, we were taken upstairs to a dismal, dark attic and told to find places on piles of straw that covered the floor. It was jet black, with only the light of a small candle near a guard with a tommy gun. Our medics, who managed to keep their medical kits, gave all the wounded shots of morphine. Sammy, a medic from the 99th Division, who had been picked up, helped. Then, being Jewish with parents from Germany, he talked to the sentry in his native language, establishing a good rapport with him. Damato, Sakwinski and I curled up and tried to sleep, but couldn't. During the night, the guard was changed. The first sentry left soon to reappear with a bottle of schnapps. It was passed round until emptied. Shortly thereafter, an officer suddenly burst into the room, red-faced with anger. He began cursing at the sentry because we had been given the schnapps. Sammy finally managed to placate the officer, denying that the sentry had brought us the liquor. However, the hot liquor in our empty stomachs seemed to have a soothing effect. I had managed to hang on to a D-ration chocolate bar and shared it with Joe before we got some sleep. At daybreak on the 24th, we were loaded aboard a truck and a weapons carrier, though our number had grown as more men were brought in. We were packed like sardines in a can, with the wounded put in the truck where they weren't as vulnerable to the icy wind. Our driver had been thoroughly briefed as to our route, yet continually got lost. Over winding roads through the hills and forest covered with snow, our journey was as rambling as a drunk's. A heavy mist still covered everything, but wore away as the day lengthened. On all sides was left the carnage of the battle, burned trucks, tanks and jeeps, destroyed homes, some still burning and smoking, and the dead, frozen in the snow, like fish in a box of ice. In the distance I could hear the crash of artillery shells and knew the battle was still raging. The sun came out as we finally reached a small village which had recently been bombed and strafed by our planes. Fires blazed, huge craters were in the road and fields, and German soldiers were crouched in roadside ditches. They looked anxiously at the sky, searching for the P-47s which had just left the village a mess. We unloaded the trucks, with the wounded being taken to a dressing station where we were examined and had our dressings changed. The return of our planes sent the Germans scurrying for cover while we cowered in the house with the bombs dropping outside to be followed by long strafing runs from our planes. A bomb dropped nearby, the house shook and plaster came down like snow. Even though I revelled in the Germans' terror, I realised that we were just as vulnerable as they were, but the attack was short-lived. Our wounds were dressed, we were taken to a nearby house and put with the other prisoners. It was a typical Belgian farmhouse, with a barn attached to the house. We went into the barn, so crowded with prisoners that you could hardly turn around. The floor was covered with straw, wet with urine and smeared with faeces. Anxiously, we waited until the enemy soldiers came and took us away, several at a time, for questioning. Fortunately, the officer who questioned me seemed to know all he needed because his questions were curt. I tried to follow the instructions given to us in training, and that seemed to be satisfactory. Back in the barn... Others said that the Germans had a detailed knowledge of the units trapped in Bastogne, as well as those trying to break through to them. Additional prisoners kept being added to our number, including the crew of a C-47 that had been shot down on a supply run to Bastogne. The flyers gave us the latest news of the battle, which wasn't that much, and said Patton's army had reached the outskirts of Bastogne. Late in the day, the Germans brought us a large kettle of steaming hot noodle soup, no one had any mess gear except some spoons, something an infantryman could keep as handy as his rifle. By passing the spoons around, everyone got some of the hot soup, the first warm meal, 
some had had in nearly a week. There was a small egg stove at one end of the barn, which was freezing cold, and a robust German began shouting something which none of us understood. Finally, Harold Zimberg spoke up, telling us that the German wanted some of us to go out in the yard and fetch some coal for the stove. Several men volunteered and soon a fire was going, giving those near it some warmth. Straw was pulled from the loft and thrown on the floor, but the barn was so crowded there wasn't room for everyone to lie down. Most of us stood or sat throughout the night, saying little, but despondent about our fate. On Christmas Day, we woke hungry and cold, the coal in the stove long since having been consumed. Everyone was flushed from the barn to be lined up and counted. Assigning five guards to watch over us, the enemy herded us onto a hard road for the long trip to Germany. The soup had long since been digested and my stomach growled with hunger. Also, my wounds hurt, especially the one in the wrist. The sky was bright and clear, ideal for our planes, as we hiked along the icy road. We walked past the usual carnage, burned and wrecked vehicles, one a German ambulance, well marked with the Red Cross. Bodies were still in its smouldering wreckage. Several times the road was blocked and the able-bodied prisoners made to remove the wreckage left by our planes. Our guards made the prisoners carry their rucksacks. The guard near me was munching on fried chicken legs. Several times he waved a leg in front of me saying, Das ist gut, ja? Then he would laugh and take a bite. At that time I couldn't understand his hatred. In all my experiences with prisoners, I had tried to be compassionate, one time nearly being killed by a sniper when I helped one back to our aid station. However, after seeing the damage our bombers did to their country, I began to fathom the depths of their animosity. Ahead we could see and hear our P-47s, which the Germans called Yabos, and our P-51s going about their missions with a vengeance. It never entered my mind that we would be their next target. The guards became very agitated by the planes, but we weren't worrying. After all, we were Americans, they wouldn't bother us. We were wrong. The American planes seemed to come out of nowhere, and the guards began shouting, Yabos! and diving for the ditches. Some of the prisoners foolishly stood and waved at the planes as they came in from the side of the road with machine guns blazing. I dove right for a ditch. It was too shallow but provided some cover. I could hear the guns hammering and saw their bullets tearing chunks out of the macadam road, sparks flying. It was scary, as fearful as being caught in an artillery or mortar barrage. One plane made a pass, zoomed up in a wide turn and came back. I saw streams of tracers coming right at me, puffs of exploding road and sparks. A couple of medics jumped up, shouting and waving their arms frantically. The planes must have gotten the message and broke it off and left. There were people down in the road. Our medics went right to work on them. One was Tech Sergeant Bonner of our 326 medical company, hit in the hip by a bullet which came out of his leg near his knee. He was bleeding profusely. The chicken-eating guard was also down within an arm's length of me. He still clutched the chicken leg in his hand, but a bullet had passed right through his chest and he lay in a pool of blood. The guards had the POWs carry the dead and wounded as we continued on our trip. Not for long. Each time we made some progress, the planes came back, strafing and sending us to the ditches. Finally, we reached a small village, with the dead and wounded Germans being taken to a hospital, and the rest of us to a building which, evidently, was a Nazi headquarters. Herded into a large hall decorated with banners, photos of the Fuhrer and other political paraphernalia, we were told to find places for ourselves. Most of us wearily flopped on the floor, especially the wounded, and waited for further developments. I was famished, and my wounds ached. Joe D'Amato was in a similar state. The large wound in his thigh was giving him trouble. Hunger pangs gnawed at our stomachs. 
For six days, we had been living off one or two cold K rations a day and had burnt a lot of energy performing our duties. Most of the other men were no better off. We were free to walk around the hall and inspect the Nazi propaganda lining the walls. It seemed inconceivable to me that the German people could swallow such garbage, but such must be life under a dictatorship. Finally, a German brought a large box into the room. It was our meal, a carton of rotting and half-frozen apples. Very few of the men touched them. Our medics, now under the command of Sergeant Bell, had been attending to Sergeant Bonner. In vain, they tried to have the Germans take him to a hospital in one of the ambulances which was going through the town. Bonner was barely conscious and bleeding badly. He would surely die if he didn't get surgical attention in a hurry. But the Germans were adamant and Bonner eventually died because of this indifference. A German staff car going to the rear stopped in front of the building. After a short discussion with our guards, it was agreed that the car would take some of the wounded to a clearing hospital. Sequinsky and I were led outside and into the car. We began a cold ride with the driver, an officer and a guard to look after us. We reached a small village near dark and were taken into an inn. We were in Luxembourg. A bright light burned in a large fireplace and the inn was crowded with civilians and Germans. The officer with us ushered us to a table and instructed a waitress to bring us something to eat and drink. She brought a sandwich and some ersatz, wartime substitute, coffee, the first I ever tasted, and it wasn't very good. Meanwhile, the officer sat with us, conversing in perfect English. He told us that Bastogne had fallen and all the Americans in it had been killed, wounded or captured. He said the German offensive had been successful, Liège had been taken and Eisenhower was a prisoner. The German drive was now close to Antwerp. None of it was true, of course. Our captor was simply another victim of the German radio broadcasts. The officer ordered a bottle of wine and shared it with us. He was very amiable, nothing like I had pictured German officers to be. Another German officer joined our group, and the two sat discussing something over a map. Meanwhile, our waitress, a middle-aged woman with a kindly face, rubbed against me and pressed something into my hand. I slipped it in the big pocket of my baggy combat trousers. She did it a second and third time. Later, I discovered they were cookies from sea rations. An hour later, we were taken outside and told to climb on the top of a stake-bodied truck with a canvas cover. A guard climbed on with us. D'Amato had come up with a GI blanket, and the three of us lay huddled together trying to escape the biting cold wind whipping over the top of the cab and eyeing the guard on the back, who was just as cold but holding a machine pistol. The truck drove over the snowy road under blackout conditions, snaking through one fir forest after another. It took me a while to fathom that beside us he was carrying a load of jerry cans filled with gasoline. There was another guard on the front fender who anxiously scanned the moonlit sky. Suddenly he shouted a warning the truck made a dash for another clump of trees and slid to a halt. Moments later a low-flying British mosquito fighter bomber zoomed just a hundred yards or so over us, evidently hunting for fat targets like gas trucks. However, he was gone in a flash and we continued on our journey. Hours later, we reached a small village, so stiff with cold that we could hardly move. There was no need for the guard. We couldn't have escaped if we wanted to. We pulled into a courtyard with large buildings on each side. We were taken to the building on the right, upstairs to the second floor, to a room with a dozen or so American prisoners in it. The floor was covered with straw, and an egg stove threw out enough heat to keep the place warm. We went right to it, gradually thawing out. I met one of the C-47 pilots who'd been shot down on a supply run to Bastogne. He was about 25, small and blonde, and he was badly burned on hands and face with one leg in a cast. He also had a dislocated shoulder from landing in a tree before hitting the ground. 
After picking him up, the Germans took him to their CP for questioning, doing nothing for his burns, shoulder or broken leg. When he refused to tell anything about his mission or unit, he was made to sit in a chair in great pain and with no medical attention. The next day, he'd undergone more questioning but still refused to talk. Understanding that they had a hard case on their hands, the Germans eventually relented and took care of his injuries. Joe and I settled down to sleep, but hardly closed our eyes when a guard came for us. I had taken off my shoes to rub my feet warm. The impatient guard kept shouting, Common! For bite common! His machine pistol under my nose, I left the boots and followed him. We went down the stairs, across the courtyard, nearly knee-deep in snow, and to the other building which was serving as a temporary hospital. When we walked into the operating room, I nearly gagged. There were half a dozen tables surrounded by doctors in white rubber aprons splattered with blood. All the tables were occupied, with German wounded or men with frozen limbs. Buckets on the table held toes, fingers and other appendages. The men on the tables had been given a local anaesthetic, but were still screaming and groaning as the doctors worked. Sammy, the medic, stood by, acting as an interpreter. He said I would be operated on, but not D'Amato. When it came to my turn, I felt like running, but climbed on the table anyway. A rag with ether was held on my face, and I dropped off. I was awakened by slaps on my face and saw my right wrist was heavily bandaged and painful. Back across the courtyard, I went and into the room. Some German wounded had been brought in, most with frozen limbs. They sat huddled around the stove, cold, wet, dispirited and looking nothing like supermen. Sammy came back too, saying Bonner was in the hospital at last but not expected to live. He didn't, dying during the night. At daybreak we were awakened and given a black bread sandwich with some cheese on it. Ravishingly hungry, we savoured every bite. Later, a doctor came into the room talking to us in English. He seemed to be a veteran of many campaigns with battle ribbons and the Iron Cross decoration. He didn't try to pry any information out of us, just chatted amiably and told us what he could about the battle raging in the Ardennes. He seemed less optimistic than the first officer who talked with us. After he left, a German NCO visited the loft. He was a typical Nazi, full of propaganda and belligerent. He spoke poor English, which he had acquired while working as a seaman. We were glad when he went away. That evening, some local girls visited the loft, passing out chocolate bars gotten from our rations and sandwiches made with rye bread and salami. Absolutely delicious. We thanked them warmly for their kindness. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. The following day, Joe D'Amato and I were taken out and put on a truck loaded with German wounded. Although some of them looked at us with daggers in their eyes, most were so disconsolate that all they seemed to want to do was to be relieved of their pain. It was another long, cold ride with the freezing air cutting right through our uniforms. The ride was interrupted off and on because our planes, which circled in the sky like vultures hunting for food, were attacking any vehicle they saw. It was dark when we reached a small town and were taken right to a temporary hospital for military cases. We were put in a hallway on benches and given a bowl of soup and a sandwich while the Germans were taken to rooms. As we ate, we met five medics from an American outfit who had been kept at the hospital to carry litter cases. They said they worked from six in the morning to eleven at night, receiving as pay two sandwiches apiece for breakfast and lunch and a bowl of soup and a cup of airsats coffee for supper. Later, they took us to a room. Mine was small, the floor straw-covered with blankets. All the other wounded were Germans, and I was put between two SS troopers. They did not seem hostile. In fact, it looked as if they wanted to talk. However, as I spoke no German and they no English, our conversation amounted to sign language and pidgin English. The man next to me had been an anti-tank gunner and told me about knocking out two American tanks. However, the third got him, killing everyone in his crew but him. He even got a small metal case out of an inner pocket. It contained half-smoked cigarettes, and he graciously offered me one. Even though I was never a cigarette smoker, I took a butt and smoked it with him. Later that evening, a nun visited the room, handing out some cookies and a chocolate bar to each man, a gift because of the Christmas holidays. In the distance, I could hear other nuns singing Christmas carols and my thoughts turned to home. Would my wife and parents know that I'd been captured? Due to the confused nature of the fighting, would they believe me killed? I wrote a letter to my wife, most every day possible, and she wrote too. How would she take my being missing in action? As much as my wounds pained me, my emotions did more. The next day, I walked the hall looking for D'Amato. I found him when we stood talking about our situation. Was it possible to escape? There were no guards at the entrance, but where would we go? We didn't have the slightest idea where we were or how far were the American lines. Just then, an elderly priest came by and spoke to us in English. He was kindly, but seemed terrified of the Wehrmacht. When we mentioned escaping, he begged us not to, telling us there was no chance because of the weather, the deplorable condition we were in, and our inability to speak German. He also said some other POWs had tried it and had been killed. At nine that evening, Joe and I were taken to an ambulance. After being put aboard, we heard a lot of confused talking, and we were unloaded, marched down the street to a small building jammed with mostly German wounded, and told to sit on a bench until we were registered. Then we were taken to an overcrowded room and left. There was no place to sit or lie, so we stood, wondering what was coming next. Suddenly, American voices came from the back of the room, and we went to meet three GIs who lay in a corner. Making room for us, they were anxious to hear our versions of the battle. 
One, called Tex, was from the 106th Infantry Division, an outfit that lost two complete regiments in the initial phase of the German breakthrough. He had frozen feet. Another, Clark, was from a tank outfit, wounded and captured during the first days of the German offensive. Detroit, whose first name I have unfortunately forgotten, was a combat engineer and must have had dozens of pieces of small shrapnel in his lower legs. His pants were torn off at the knees and he had no overcoat. He had suffered miserably in his trip to the hospital due to the cold, yet seemed happy and good-natured. He said he and Clark had lain in the basement of a house for eight days with little food or water before the Germans evacuated them, all the while being under constant artillery fire as the battle raged around them. The following day, December the 29th, we were awakened by a loud explosion and a screaming noise. Detroit informed us that we were near a buzz bomb launching station which was sending rockets into Liège in Brussels. Joe and I went to a window in time to see one taking off from behind a copse of trees. It looked like a small plane and spouted flame from rear exhausts. People on the streets cheered as they roared away, confident that the rockets, one of Hitler's secret weapons, were going to win the war for them. Late in the morning, sirens started to wail and the German wounded nearly panicked. Those who could rushed from the room and across the street to a shelter. Those who couldn't stayed and prayed, their faces locked in terror. Going to a window, I looked up and saw the myriad vapour trails of a formation of B-17 bombers. I couldn't see them release their bombs, but I heard the explosions. Evidently, the rocket base was the target. The town rocked as if hit by an earthquake, the building shaking and the noise deafening. It didn't take a genius to figure out that we were just as vulnerable as the Germans, and we sat on our beds of straw, praying that the bombardier's aim was bad. A second bombing group followed the first, and once more the town shook. Our German wounded were nearly insane with terror, shouting and screaming things which we didn't understand. When the bombers finally left, the Germans cursed us, calling us swine and other choice obscenities. I really couldn't get mad at them because hundreds of thousands of civilians were killed in those raids. One thing was certain, as far as I was concerned. The sooner I got to a POW camp, the safer I would feel. We stayed in the building for three days, one a carbon copy of the other, with the daily raids. I don't know why the Germans didn't attack us. They were that mad. But most were badly wounded, so all we got were vindictive stares and curses. Some of us wounded were put on a truck several days later. After a ride that lasted all day and well into the night, we arrived at the town of Euskirchen, about 20 miles west of Bonn. We were taken to an abandoned school for disabled people, which had been turned into a clearing hospital. It was crowded with German wounded, so crowded that many slept on the floors in the hallways. It was a heart-wrenching sight to see so many seriously wounded, amputees, men in bloody casts, screaming and groaning. I didn't care whether or not they were my enemies. My heart bled for their suffering as we passed them on the way to be checked in. We were registered and led to a dark, damp basement with no lighting. There were some wooden dining chairs lying around and we pushed them together and lay across them. A little later a German entered with a candle, handing each of us a sandwich. As the German went around handing out the food, more candles flickered on and we saw the basement was full of German wounded who slept on temporary double-deck bunks with straw mattresses. There were others on straw pallets on the floor. I didn't understand the reason for putting men in a damp and dingy place until the next day. It was an air raid shelter and most of these men were on litters. It was a horrible existence for them, cold, damp, dark, and they had to stay there until places could be found for them in hospitals, which were just as vulnerable to the bombs dropped by our planes. At noon, the sirens began to scream, and ambulatory German wounded rushed to our basement. Soon it was so packed that no one could move. Bombs began dropping outside, 
The building began to shake and some of the wounded began screaming. Sitting on a chair in the flickering light of the candles, I looked at several Germans who sat just a few yards away. Dirt, dust and flecks of paint showered us from a near miss. One of the Germans glared at me, pulling a Volta automatic pistol from his holster. At that moment, anything could have happened. But soon, the bombers were gone. The all clear sounded and the German put away the pistol. When the Germans began leaving, I felt a breath of relief and prayed we'd soon be taken out of that place. A little later, an SS trooper came over to talk to us in halting English. He was from Hamburg, had spent six years in the army, fighting in Poland, Russia, Normandy and Holland. He showed us pictures of his parents and his 14-year-old sister. All had been killed in bombing raids. Nevertheless, he seemed to have taken it philosophically, and I sensed that he had had enough of war. Others around the trooper added their opinions through him. From what they said, I think the bombings had hardened their resolve to fight to the finish. We endured another bombing the following day. I was sure we would be attacked by the Germans in the basement, perhaps killed if we weren't removed from that basement soon. Fortunately, we were the following day, being led up five flights of stairs to the attic by an English-speaking doctor. Taken to the far end of the place, we saw a small room with an egg stove and the floor covered by straw with blankets on top. As I was the ranking NCO, the doctor said that I would be in charge of the POWs. He also said, with a smirk on his lips, that the reason we had been placed in the attic was because, if the building were to be hit by bombs, we would be the first to know it. He added, however, that if any more wounded Americans were brought in, I was to check their wounds and, should any be in immediate danger, I was to let him know immediately. Our attic had large windows at each end, so that we could look out over the snow-covered city. It was beautiful, but marred by gutted buildings, deep bomb craters and blackened ruins. I couldn't understand why it had been bombed so heavily, until later, when an American airman was brought in and told me that it was the bombing pattern for attacks on Bonn. As our B-17s were often over 20,000 feet up, and their targets often covered by clouds, bombs were released using instrument readings, almost haphazardly. More men were added to our loft every day. We were served a breakfast of black bread and ersatz coffee, sometimes with cheese or jam. The meagre rations were never enough to sate our appetites. We also had a noon meal of soup, and for supper there were black bread sandwiches. Because my wounded arm hurt so badly, and I developed a fever, I had little appetite, and gave my sandwiches to D'Amato or Detroit. Even though we were in a hospital, we had none of the amenities associated with one. We never received any medical attention, until I went to the English-speaking doctor and demanded it. There was a toilet in the attic and a wash basin, but no soap or towels. We ate the soup out of cans with spoons we had to steal from somewhere. There were no linens, shaving items or medicine for pain, nor were there any means to wash our filthy clothing. Most of us just had what we had with us when we were captured. We managed to wash our faces with the icy water in the restroom, but it wasn't enough to remove all of the dirt and crud picked up in combat and our travels since. Under these conditions, it wasn't long before many of us had diarrhoea. Nothing was more terrifying than the bombings. Several of the men tried to leave the attic for a ground floor during one of the raids, but were quickly sent back. The building would vibrate from near misses, windows shattering and the screams of the wounded downstairs reaching us. Once Joe and I were called downstairs before a raid, and on the way up a raid began. Standing crouched in a doorway, with bombs dropping outside, I saw the long and broad windows by the staircase bow in nearly a foot without a break, when a concussion wave hit the side of the building. Morris Gervitz, a medic from the 99th Infantry Division, who spoke German, had been working in the hospital carrying in littered cases. He was sent to the attic and was a welcome addition. 
short, chubby and good-natured. He took over care of the wounded. He had been captured the first day or so of the German offensive in the Ardennes, awakening in his slit trench one morning to find all the other members of his company gone and the Germans on every side of him. He helped lift our despondent spirits with his funny banter, making life a little more bearable. Our helplessness during the bombings was beginning to erode our willpower and everyone wished that he could be shipped onto a stalag, prisoner of war camp. By January the 4th, I had been a POW for nearly two weeks and my arm was swollen, red-streaked and full of pus. I could rarely sleep and ate very little. Morris went to the doctor in charge and demanded treatment. An artillery officer had recently been brought up to the attic with a hideous wound in the back of his thigh. It was split open like a dropped melon and the crepe paper bandage put on by the Germans had loosened and fallen to his knee, leaving the wound totally exposed. I helped him down the five flights of stairs to the operation room on the first floor. The English-speaking doctor and a nurse were in the room, put me on the table and had the officer sit on the floor. While the doctor was treating my wound, the sirens began to scream and I could hear the ambulatory wounded rushing down the hallway to stairs leading to the basement. A short time later, bombs began to drop some less than several hundred yards from the hospital. The nurse began to scream when a near-miss shook the building, running to a corner of the room and cowering like a whipped puppy. The doctor's face turned purple with rage. He grabbed me around the throat and began choking me. I tried to fight him off with my good arm, but he was young and strong. Fortunately for me, the artillery officer struggled to his feet and pulled the doctor off me. The raid was short-lived, probably accidental because the target was Bonn. And once the planes had gone, the doctor regained his composure, apologising to me for his behaviour. He said that the raids were almost daily and that several patients have died because of them. The bombing, he admitted, had also pushed his nerves to the breaking point. The days dragged on and we were still confined to the attic. Our group had grown to about 17, with several from the 101st Airborne. Sergeant Carl Robert and PFC Leo Leandowski, both paratroopers who had been in all our unit's campaigns, were brought in as well as a trooper from the 82nd Airborne and an Indian from the 35th Division. Someone made a checkerboard and another had a deck of cards. So, aside from the air raids, life wasn't too bad. Potatoes were stolen from a cold storage basement where men were asked to perform minor fatigue details and they were fried on the stovepipe. Things, however, weren't going too well for me. My wounded wrist was so painful that I couldn't sleep and I was depressed. Not only had the lack of medical treatment and the bombing affected me, but my thoughts kept drifting back to my being captured at the roadblock. I kept asking myself what had gone wrong. In all our combat experience, never had a situation been so overwhelming and confusing that we hadn't been able to salvage something out of it. Why had the rest of my platoon been kept from joining me? Had they been there, the roadblock could have been held, at least until the aid station was evacuated. Why had Lieutenant Wagner left and never returned? He told me later that he had been cut off and couldn't get back, and I believed him. Why hadn't someone seen the second platoon withdrawing and warned those in the aid station? I later learned from men who survived that day that the platoon's defence line had been so badly mauled by the tank guns that all semblance of order was lost. When nightfall came, it was every man for himself. The survivors fell back and the company withdrew a mile and a half closer to Bastogne to make a final stand, which came on the 25th. At 0300, 18 Mark IV Panzers and two battalions of infantry from the 77th Panzer Grenadiers struck in a do-or-die attack. When the battle ended at 0900, all 18 German tanks had been destroyed by a combination of fire from four TDs, the guns of the 463rd PFA and the weapons of the 401st GIR. Captain Preston Towns was mortally wounded that evening. 
Little did we realise then that by being captured we may have had our lives spared. The wounded from those fights had been taken to the division hospital in Bastogne. On the 26th, the hospital was badly hit by German bombers and many of the wounded were killed, including men who had escaped from our roadblock. In our attic, we had little knowledge of the scope of the battle. New arrivals brought us local news and the English-speaking doctor brought us the German version, which was mostly propaganda. He visited the attic most every day, more of a social call than medical, as very little was ever done for our wounds. A case in point was the young soldier who was brought up with the side of his forehead missing and the brain exposed. He had been bandaged with a paper bandage which had fallen off and his body was covered by powdery dust. It was said that he had been in a building struck by a bomb. He was a medic who had been helping the wounded. Sammy and Morris cleaned the young boy and rebandaged his wound, but the fellow was delirious, tearing the wrapping away and crying hoarsely, Wasser! Ich muss Wasser haben! We did everything in our limited power to solace the dying man, who seemed in great pain. I prevailed upon our doctor to administer an opiate, and he sent up a nurse with morphine. The next day, his suffering ended. With his last breath, he asked for his mother. Some of our men took him down to a shed which served as a morgue. I kept a dog tag and his identification papers to turn into someone in charge at our next stop. He was barely twenty, blonde and handsome, and came from Birmingham, Alabama. In his wallet were photos of his mother, father, sister and brothers. He had a beautiful girlfriend. The experience bit into my psyche. What a terrible way to die, among strangers, and in a place where his body might never be recovered. We carried water to the room and took helmet baths, without benefit of soap, towel or shaving items. We even managed to wash our underwear and socks, drying them on the stovepipe. And we had our first experience with body lice. They were in the straw we slept on. Each morning after the meagre meal, we would search our clothing for them, finding and mashing the opaque pests between our fingernails. Then a new arrival had a razor and we shaved for the first time, nearly ripping our skin apart because we lacked shaving cream and hot water. Every five days we went down to the dispensary and had the bandages on our wounds changed. Without any healing medicines, it took a long time for most to heal. One morning, a German sergeant came to the attic, asking for volunteers for a coal detail. The only way he could get anyone was to promise an extra ration of bread or a cigarette. Most of the men were inveterate smokers and took a turn at the details. I still had a pipe and lent it out as I no longer had the urge to smoke. The others smoked just about everything in it, including Airsat's coffee grounds. Some of the Germans who came to get a glimpse of American POWs were adamant Nazis. One, a sergeant, had been a POW the British in World War I. A loud, belligerent sort, he told about how little the British fed him in this three years of captivity and how well we had it. He had completely swallowed the Nazi party line, still believing Germany would win the war, even as it was being destroyed by our bombers. Our favourite German was actually a Ukrainian. In very broken English, he would say to me, I love American, hugging me with arms strong enough to break into a cask. He had been captured in the Crimea and to keep from starving, went into the Wehrmacht Medical Corps. Sometimes he would get drunk and come to the attic at night, laughing and cutting up like a kid. And what a thief he was, stealing cigarettes and pipe tobacco, strong enough to make one's head swim, giving them to us without any remuneration. He said his joy in life was to steal from the Germans. As the days dragged on, seeing that none of us had tried to escape, the Germans relaxed security. We sent men to pick up our meagre meals but didn't roam the hospital corridors because of the hostility caused by the bombings. Another 101st man came in, PFC Frank Tiedemann, 506th from Patterson, New Jersey. 
He had been wounded and captured near Noville when his platoon ran headlong into a platoon of Mark IVs. He had half a dozen pieces of shrapnel in his face, arms and body, none life-threatening. Frank told me that he was all ready to go on pass to Paris when the alert came. He had drawn over $200 in back pay, dressed in Class A's and was waiting for the bus. He barely had time to get back to the barracks and get on his combat uniform when the trucks pulled out for Belgium. During the raids, the doctor told me to evacuate the more seriously wounded before anyone else, and this I did, even if it caused hard feelings. No one wanted to stay in the attic any longer than he had to during a raid. A captain from the 101st came in with a severely damaged shoulder, and a trooper from the 17th Airborne with a mangled hand and ripped open thigh. I sent them out, getting some flack for it. Another fellow came in with a band-aid on the side of his nose, and another over the opening in one ear. He could barely speak, just mumble, and I thought he'd been hit by shrapnel. When two days later he said a bullet had passed right through his head, I was stunned. He went right out, but the attic was getting crowded, about 30 men in all, and I leaned on the doctor to do something about it. He told me he would see what he could do. A Russian slave worker was brought up to the attic one morning by German medics. He had been horribly wounded in a bombing and hadn't received any medical help whatsoever. He was in agony moaning and groaning loudly and thrashing about. I begged the doctor for some morphia, but he refused, saying he treated the Russians the way he treated the Germans. The man died two days later, and the Germans refused to remove his body to the morgue. None of our men wanted to either, until the Germans offered some cigarettes in payment for conducting the odious chore. During one of the raids, a bomb dropped on the adjacent building, housing some of the disabled people who had formerly occupied the building we were in. Twenty-six were killed and many wounded. After that, none of us wanted to go down and pick up meals. The hostility from our captors was so bad. Then the doctor told me small groups of Americans would be leaving periodically for stalags and convalescent camps. I sent out the worst cases first. Then it became my turn to leave. Gervitz, Detroit, D'Amato, Robert, Lewandowski, a member of the 502nd PIR, whose first name I no longer knew, Tiedemann and I were put in a truck with straw placed on the bed. A young Italian worker was on the truck, and through Joe, who spoke the language, told us how much better off we would be in a prison camp. Good food, clean clothing, cigarettes and Red Cross parcels would be available, he said glowingly. I never did know where he had learned that, because none of it was true. But we were free from the hospital in Euskirchen and the terrible bombings. All breathed a sigh of relief, feeling nothing could be worse. How wrong we were.